You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Tuesday, June 16th, just after market close here in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joining from New York. We're going to be joined shortly by Ed Harrison near Washington, D.C. But first, Peter Cooper with the latest on the Fed. Thanks, Ash. When the Fed had announced the rollout of their new corporate bond buying program on Monday afternoon, equities surged in response. And they continued to trade higher today. U.S. stocks roared in the open, with all three major indices showing extreme strength, with the industrial heavy Dow outpacing the Nasdaq. The bullishness wasn't limited to America. We saw European stocks soar as well. And also in Asia, with the Nikkei 225 exploded, up 4.8%. The Fed had announced an expansion to their bond buying program by beginning to buy, quote, a broad and diversified portfolio of corporate bonds to support market liquidity and the availability of credit for large employers. This portfolio will be, quote, based on a broad diversified market index of U.S. corporate bonds, end quote. These bonds will need to meet the secondary market corporate credit facilities criteria for eligibility. But what makes this a marketed shift from Fed's initial plans is that originally corporate companies needed to self-certify that they were eligible. This change in the Fed's plans relieved some of the pressure on companies who feared publicly signaling their distress and their need for the Fed's intervention. The Fed said in its statement, quote, this index is made up of all the bonds in the secondary market that have been issued by U.S. companies that satisfy the facility's minimum rating, maximum maturity, and other criteria. Bonds rallied hard on the announcement last night. But going into today, they plateaued slightly. It's looking like most of the liquidity flooded into equities as investors' appetite for risk peaked. Today's rally was also supported by an eye-popping retail sales number, which increased by a whopping 17.7% in May, the highest monthly increase on record. This was more than double economist projections, which was 8.2%. Department stores such as Macy's, Kohl's, and Nordstrom really boomed with the reopening of many of their brick-and-mortar locations. If this persists, this could signal the trajectory of the recovery, possibly lifting the economy out of the recessionary period, which began in February, according to NPER's announcement last week. However, be wary that this spike could do a 180 in a couple months. A huge factor influencing this spending spree is directly related to the extra $600 provided in unemployment benefits and the stimulus checks sent to Americans earlier this year. The extra money provided to unemployed persons is set to expire at the end of July, so consumers may be strapped for cash from then on out if nothing is done by the government. Chairman Jay Powell testified today to the Senate Banking Committee that, quote, until the public is confident that the disease is contained, a full recovery is unlikely, end quote. This statement aligns with some of the gloomier data put out by the Fed last week, with the economy set to shrink by 6.5% this year. As the virus continues to rage across different states in the U.S. and abroad in places like Beijing, all of this progress towards an economic recovery could very well vanish in the blink of an eye and potentially lead us to that double-dip recession that we've been talking about here on The Daily Briefing. And with that, let's see what Ash and Ed have on their minds today. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Peter. Welcome, Ed. Uh, great to be here, Ash. And uh, I noticed that you and Peter have gone with the uh, Blue Shirt Tuesday selection today. Yes, I noticed that uh, from you as well. Apparently, we all got the same email this morning. Um, Ed, another busy, eventful day in markets and news. What are you looking at? Well, I thought it was interesting that uh, I was looking at the dispersion in uh, indices that went up in the U.S. Well, first of all, they were up very uh, markedly in Europe, catching up to the U.S. overnight. But then when you looked at the day close today, we had the small cap 2000 up more than the Dow, which was up more than the S&P, which is up more than the NASDAQ. So at the margin, you saw people sort of rotating into the value in cyclical plays, which would suggest to me that there was some uplift in terms of how people are thinking about the potential for the recovery. Yeah. To recap, for those who haven't seen those uh, closing levels, uh, Russell 2000 up 2.3% to the 1452 level, uh, S&P up 58 points or 1.9% uh, to close at 3124. Right. And so I think that uh, we're, we're back. I mean, the, the, the rally or the sell-off that we had last week seems like it's over. It was a hiccup, even though we're still getting all the data that we've been getting about uh, COVID-19 case counts going up. It shows you that that really wasn't the catalyst for what happened yesterday or last week. Really, the, the market is now back in bullish mode with the same data still trickling out. I think people really do believe that uh, it, there's going to be a, um, a, a better recovery than expected. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting thing to try and structure in our own minds to think about how we're thinking about this. You know, I read your newsletter uh, today, the Credit Write Downs newsletter, and it's it's really interesting to me because of the structure and not just what you say, but the the first half of the newsletter. If you haven't already read it, I'd I'd, I'd recommend you do so. The first half is really a clinic about the way to think about recessions and recovery from a macroeconomic standpoint, and then in the second half, you talk about the COVID crisis and figuring out how those two meta narratives, however you want to frame it, those themes play off each other. It's a really interesting and challenging thing to do when we look at something as dynamic as markets. With all that as prologue, Ed, what are you thinking and how do you think about how those two things interrelate? Well, uh, let me tell you, first and foremost, I think the recession's over. I think that that's a controversial view, but we already got the dating committee telling us that this recession began in February. Uh, we saw a number from retail sales that was 17.7 today, and it was uh, you know 17.7 percent up in May versus April. What that's telling you is 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 that at, at a minimum output is likely to be higher in May than it was in April, which would suggest to me that the recession is over. Usually employment is a lagging indicator at the end of recessions. You could still see initial jobless claims at a high level. You could see unemployment rates going up at, at previous uh, recessions. But what you need to see, what a recession is, is a decline from the peak to the trough. We've hit the trough, and now we're bouncing up from the trough so dramatically, as this number that we got today shows you, that you really have to say that the recession's over. So that's the first thing. Then beyond that, we have to decide uh, two things. One, what does the policy stimulus look like? And then two, what does the virus look like uh, 
after we get out of our post-lockdown period. So once the economy gets going back again, we're going to go into a, a new normal, which is a new somewhat socially distanced normal, but with the virus still active and still creating the potential for a, a second dip, maybe even a double dip recession. Yeah, those are both so important. Let's take them each one at a time. First, let's talk about retail sales numbers. You talk about this uh, in credit write-downs in a way that is very sophisticated and nuanced. You're basically explaining the nature of what recovery means and what recession means and making the important point uh, that it is about you know, basically recovery from previous levels. And definitionally, when a recession is ending, you are going to end at a lower terminal point than you began before you went into the recession. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, because I, uh, I saw a lot of people saying, you know, so what that uh, we had 17.7% of, of a bounce. You know, we were shut down in April, but that's this is the definition of a recession. Recession is a, a period of declining growth. And so by definition, the starting point is higher than the ending point when you leave the recession. And what yeah. we saw actually with the 17.7 percent month on month increase, actually, it was a 6 percent decline year on year, 8 percent from the high in February. So, yes, from yeah. February to May, you got 8 percent decline. And that was a recession. Now that recession has come to an end. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Ed. It's like we're we're writing the same bullet points independently. That was the next point I was going to talk about. Year over year, retail sales down 6.1% from May of 2019, which is pretty dismal. And that tells you it has to be a recession, right? I mean, I mean, that is a stunning number. And let me just say something, too, about recessions and depressions, because the same thing can be said about 1929 to 1932. 29 to 32 peaked the trough from August 29 to I believe it was mid-1932, uh, uh, what you got was a 15% decline about in GDP during that period. It, it, and and then uh, things started to tick up. And then you got another recession from 1937 to 1938. So when people talk about the Great Depression, really they're talking about a double-dip recession within the context of a massive decline from 29 to 32 in particular. So the, the the depression wasn't a period where actually the you were in recession for the entire period. You had two distinct periods of recession and one period in between that was a uplift that where the economy was actually turning up. So it's not necessarily the case that just because we left recession in May or we're not in recession now that in fact we're not in the middle of a depression. It could actually be a depression. Uh, only time will tell. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very complex and nuanced issue, uh, and then to unpack the next layer, what we were beginning to talk about was where we are right now with COVID and what the impact is potentially on future growth, future employment, and future economic output. Yeah, you know, I, sh I showed you that. Uh... The article that I thought was very interesting from the Jerusalem Post, I saw it in one or two other uh, uh, places where there was a Scripps uh, study that purported to show that there's a, a specific variant of the COVID-19 coronavirus that is better at uh, latching on and therefore infecting people. And so... The, the hypothesis is that this is the, 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 the strain to be thinking about, especially with regard to the second wave. 
I think that with regard to a potential second wave, there's a lot of thinking about this. One is testing has increased a lot. Two, social distancing has decreased a lot. When you put those two together, it's really hard to say how much of the increase in numbers that we're getting in a lot of different states is due to the relaxation of social distancing, how much is due to the ramp up in testing. We'll only be able to tell that over the next weeks and months when we see what the hospitalization rates are and when we see whether or not people are dying. But to the degree that the numbers continue to be elevated, and especially hospitalizations, that's going to have a chilling effect on uh, consumption. It's going to mean that people, as I've always said, are going to lead the government in terms of their response. I don't believe the government's going to shut us down uh, you know, on, a, on a wide scale the way they did before. Maybe on an end, they'll do little mini shutdowns here and there the way that they've done in China, in Beijing. But I believe that people will actually change their behavior. Their social distancing behavior will, will change to the degree that the second wave is, is, is bad. I saw a chart earlier today, and the title was, the U.S. has yet to emerge from the first wave of coronavirus cases. And so the, 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 the overall tenor of this article was an NPR article, very well written, very well thought through using data uh, from the Johns Hopkins University uh, data collection tools, uh, basically shows that what we're seeing is simply a decline in the first wave. And if you look at the, the massive elevation from baseline, the first wave is still very much ongoing. And the implication of this, and it was actually directly stated at the end of the article was, and by the way, the second wave, the true second wave of this, and again, this is speculative, we don't know, may, may yet be to come as weather begins to decline. There's some independent research, cool, I should say, decline meaning get worse. There's some independent research that shows that in the degree of uh, temperature is inversely proportional to the rate of spread. So as an independent variable, colder weather actually appears based on the new data to increase the rate of transmission, the R0 number. Right. Yeah. And I think I had seen already when they talked about the meatpacking plant that that was like the the optimal uh, place to have uh, a transmission because it's cold, it's indoors. You, you're in a in a uh, in a position where you know uh, people are close in together. So you, obviously you could spread, and that's why we've had those clusters in the meatpacking places. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean the extraordinary thing about this virus is how much there is still unknown. Right. I mean, we, there was a bit of a good ray of hope that came out today. Dexamethasone, a very common uh, corticosteroid, uh, has been shown to decrease mortality in the most severely ill COVID patients. Now, to me, the striking thing about this is this isn't some exotic drug. Dexamethasone is an incredibly common steroid. It's given to people if you have an allergic reaction, if you have bronchitis. I think I've been on it three times for various things. This is an incredibly uh, common drug, and we're just getting the data out that shows that it does decrease mortality. And, and to me, you know, that shows two things. The first is, is just how much we don't know. And the second is just how slow it is to collect good data about treatments in ways that don't endanger patients. Yeah. And uh, I th my biggest thinking about the first versus the second wave, and you can say the first, second, and third, is that, okay, so let's say it's just one wave and that it hit New York and it hit D.C. and places like that really big. And now, because we're coming out of the lockdown, it's hitting the secondary cities, and that's all part of the first wave. Great. Let, let's say that that wave diminishes over time, especially as we go into the summer. The real question for me is whether or not the virality of the virus will be as uh, potent 
the second season around, the second cold season, as you were mentioning, because the cold is the part that you really care about. Will it be lethal at that period in time? Because if it is, then again, I think that it's going to change behavior. It's going to have very pernicious negative uh, economic effects. And that's when you will see a double dip. And that's yep. when you know the more sinister economic impacts for the economy could could rear their head. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We have these known factors. We have things that we can quantify. We have a framework that we can use to analyze recession and recovery, but it's all predicated on on these unknown factors uh, that are sort of piggybacking on them or that could change the scope of everything. Just, just as a final sort of exclamation point on this on this concept. So, you know, we all do extensive research before this show, and I was searching for the, for the latest and greatest on second wave uh, news articles before we started. And I found two articles when I searched for literally uh, second wave in double quotes. The first one was from the New York Times, quote, doctors know second wave is coming. Wall Street Journal, same day, eight hours later, quote, there isn't a coronavirus second wave. <laughs> I mean, let me say something, I, you know, for me, as a guy who's looking at the economy and markets, I'm thinking it doesn't really matter about uh, whether the second wave is coming or whether it's the first wave. Really, what matters is is how people perceive uh, the data. If on mass people perceive the data as threatening to them personally, they're going to change their behavior, and that's what's going to have the impact on the economy. Yeah, and this is exactly the complex thing to tease out. You know, we spoke earlier, and we both agreed that the day-to-day -day numbers, when they're not catastrophic, the day-to-day -day news about the virus doesn't seem to have a material impact on markets. But the bigger picture, the actual underlying demand, the animal spirits inside the economy, very much driven by this. The reopening or lack of reopening driven by the reality on the ground. So it's a really complicated thing to sort out. You know, two guys like us are not used to talking about our not numbers. That's not in our right. wheelhouse. But here we are and we have no choice and we're not doing the viewers a service if we don't at least think about it and try and frame how this can be interacting with what's happening on the ground. And, you know, uh, as you say that, I, I immediately was thinking about uh, Julian Brigden. Uh, he did this uh, ex expert view that's out today. And I was thinking, OK, let's just say that actually all of this stuff, uh, the R-naughts are going down and it's bullish for the economy. Uh, what does that mean? And I thought uh, his, his view was kind of compelling because he was saying everything is predicated on the dollar. You know, I was thinking of it in terms of the dollar smile. That is, is, is that the, the only reason right now that the dollar should be high, the, uh, the dollar index, is, is because of stress in the system, that people are coming to dollars as a safe haven. But to the degree that we're moving out of that phase, the liquidity crisis is over, and now people are thinking actually the recession is over. I'm saying it is over and that we're not going to have a double dip. That's actually dollar bearish, Julian Brigden was saying. And actually, we could be in the in the midst of a, a longer term uh, dollar bear cycle if that if that holds over a longer period of time. I thought it was a great uh, exposition into um, the dollar as a driving force for flows, especially with regard to treasuries, with regard to the treasury issuance and what sort of impact that has on you know um, the US dollar. Uh, let me just say that, just to finish off my thinking about this, is because I look at the dollar as the release valve. The currency is the release valve to the degree that foreigners do not want to hold your debt. The 
central bank can always and the government can always get domestic borrowers of their debt based upon where they think the yield curve is going over time, where they think that interest rates at the uh, the base level are going to go. But foreigners may not want to hold that uh, that debt, and they can always sell. But if they do sell, it won't have a yield impact. It will have a currency impact. And I think that Julian brings that out in what he was talking about, that the currency could be the release valve for a, a United States that is running up massive amounts of uh, debt and deficits over the next two to three years. Yeah, it's a great piece. Um, and it also brings, in, in, in a more macro sense, uh, into into relief some of the things that we were talking about over the last week or two uh, about understanding different time horizons. So what you were saying about Julian saying that there could be either a structural regime shift that pushes the dollar lower or uh, a bearish cycle on a cyclical basis pushing the dollar lower. If you haven't seen the piece, Julian's basic thesis is that um, in the longer term structural sense that uh, the U.S.'s increase in oil production has led to a structural drop in the U.S. current account deficit, which has put pressure on the global supply of dollars, creating fragility in the dollar funding markets, uh, and dollars have to flow out via the capital account to contemplate uh, to compensate, putting more pressure, um, putting more pressure on the dollar. So, right, very interesting. And again, you know, the, the same is true for uh, uh, equity assets. That it's not necessarily the case that uh, in local currency terms that the equity assets would be affected per se. Uh, by any of, of of what you just said, it could be that really the dollar is the release valve in terms of the flows. And if you're looking for assets across asset classes, you need to be thinking about what the FX currency uh, implications are, first and foremost, if you're in a regime shift in the way that he thinks that we are going to be. Yeah, it's a very interesting piece. And that's uh, that's very well said. You know, the other thing that struck me today uh, was Jay Powell's remarks uh, before Congress, before Congress, obviously today is uh, Humphrey Hawkins' testimony, uh, and he seemed to be saying, you know, this is this is a pretty significant, this is a pretty significant recession that we uh, are in or and or exiting, uh, and don't expect there to be a very rapid recovery. That's sort of my paraphrase. I don't know. Is that sort of what you came away with as well, Ed? Yeah, I, I got two or three things out of it. Uh, let me see if I can wrap up the three, uh, starting with the one that I found the most pernicious, and that is, is is that he was talking about inequality. And the thing that I found very troubling about the way that he was going about talking about inequality was uh, this is literally the day after the Fed said that they were going to be buying corporate bonds. There's nothing wrong with the corporate bond market. We've had more than a trillion dollars of issuance. The, the numbers I've seen are as high as $1.6 trillion of, of, of corporate bond issuance. So if that's the case, the, the Fed buying corporate bonds is not a necessity to help liquidity in a gummed up corporate bond market. Really, it's just a sop for Wall Street. So to the degree that he's talking about inequality, the Fed is actually actively creating the inequality by you know favoring Wall Street over Main Street because at the exact same time the Fed's doing this you know you have uh, people like uh, Larry Kudlow talking about cutting uh, unemployment benefits and things of that nature we're going to be talking about cutting the, the credit card forbearance cutting the mortgage forbearance so Main Street gets hurt but Wall Street gets a free pass from the Fed uh, to me that doesn't wash the second well 
Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I don't ever recall a Fed, uh, a Fed chair talking so much about inequality uh, before. And then, you know, conversely, a cynic might say, but continuing policies that may actually be increasing it, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, uh, I think Janet Yellen did a great job of bringing inequality to the fore. Unexpectedly, Powell has uh, extended that. But it, there's a juxtaposition there that is hard to explain. When the Fed is mucking about in markets in such an aggressive way, and then also talking about inequality. But then, of course, the, he's talking about inequality from the, the government's perspective, because that's the second part, um, is that he was basically saying, look, you know, we've done our part, now it's time for you to do yours. I think Bernanke has said this, Yellen had said this, and now Powell is saying the same thing. So when he's talking about inequality, he's talking about fiscal policy. And I think that he was basically saying, you know, Local and federal, local and municipal, municipal and state governments are going to be hurt in a big way. You guys need to step up to the plate to make sure that that doesn't hurt the economy going forward. That was one of the big takeaways. And then finally, there's the part that you were talking about, which is the economy. He was basically saying, yes, uh, the economy's not great. I've heard um, Atlanta Fed. President Rafael Bostic say he expects 10% unemployment in Q4, uh, you know, 10% from 4%. That's more than a doubling of the unemployment rate for, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. That's, that's not a good outlook. Uh, and so that tells you if we want to get back to where we were, it's going to take at least another two to three years based upon what Jay Powell and the rest of the Fed officials are saying. Yeah, at least. And then the single quote that everyone seems to have glommed into in their coverage, it's in the first five paragraphs of just about every story I read is, uh, quote, until the public is confident that the disease is contained, a full recovery is unlikely. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. P people's behavior will have altered. They'll have, uh, um, you know, precautionary saving I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. But let, let's just, you know, just to, to pay the devil's advocate, be on the positive side. Look, we did have a 17.7% uh, increase in retail sales. It was expected to be eight. The number for unemployment was actually positive. People were expecting it to be negative in terms of jobs. Things are proceeding at pace much faster than people might have anticipated. So you could say that actually uh, you could make the case. I'm not making the case. But I think there is a case to be made that things are proceeding more quickly than we than we would have expected. Yeah, I also got the sense that uh, one of the subtexts of the speech, though he didn't come out and say it directly, uh, was, look, the Fed is nearing the, the end of its ability. We need you folks to step up on the fiscal side. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I was saying that he was saying to them, we've done our part. Now it's time to do yours. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, when when they're, they're still going overboard with uh, their stops to Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, it, it's difficult. It's difficult to square the whole thing. I feel as if, yes, pass it off to the uh, pass off the baton to the, the feds and the feds are already deficit spending like crazy anyway. Uh, what more can they do except hold the line at the end of the day? I think the Fed needs to dial it back. My view is is that they need to dial back the whole thing about junk bonds, about corporate bonds, and they need to uh, let, if there's anything that needs to be done, let Main Street benefit as opposed to Wall Street. 
you know, and others have gone much for that's very that's very eloquently said and and very politely stated. Others have gone quite a great deal farther. If you read, uh, if you wade into Twitter, uh, there's a fair amount of hey, you know, the Fed is basically deciding who lives and who dies. That's the that's the cynical interpretation of this. That now the Fed is by effectively backstopping uh, the corporate debt market selectively, uh, they get to choose which companies uh, can operate at a loss indefinitely out in zombie land. That's the cynical take. Yeah, I think that there is truth to the concept that uh, low interest rates or artificially low rates uh, create zombies. And if you're buying up assets uh, of uh, corporate entities, you are creating a bid that uh, that lowers their rates. And that's going to be beneficial to companies at the margin who would otherwise not survive. So the Fed is, uh, there is the Japanification that you have to worry about. And uh, let me add, it was interesting. There was an article in the FT today that said uh, that one of the ECB's main members was asked about the same sort of thing. And they said, we haven't really discussed it yet, but we would, if necessary, go to fallen angels. We would buy the bonds of fallen angels, just like the Fed's doing so, you know, if if worse comes to worse, you know, that is when we what we were talking about before the second wave and bad things happen in our economies, the central banks are willing to to go the extra mile. Yeah, it's almost as though uh, no central bank wants to be first, but once someone else does it, then there's a precedent for it. Right. And and so, you know, the the ultimate question I think that people are asking themselves is if the Fed's got your back, why shouldn't you be buying risk assets? That's really what this is all about at this point in time. That's what the market is saying. And when the data are coming out and they're positive on the economic front, that just gives you all the more impetus to say, yes, there's no reason for us to, uh, to play it safe. We really need to get in there. Uh, the Fed's got our back. You know, also final thought from an FT article that I saw, uh, Bloomberg is as a preventive measure uh, advising its its clients of the terminal uh, to begin changing the basis that they're using to calculate interest rates in the case that they go negative. So, shades of uh, shades shades of uh, shades of oil markets here. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's been a lot of speculation about the ability to go negative. I mean, it's not the case that it's going to happen. Uh, the Fed hasn't said that they're even willing to go there, but it's a it's a sign of the times. It says that. It's not going to happen, but it could happen. And it, it just points out they'll do whatever it takes. And then your question has to be, is that good enough? Is it good enough for Wall Street or is it good enough for Main Street? It's certainly much better for Wall Street at this point, right? Uh, but is it good enough for the economy? Only time will tell. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. That is the the critical question. And uh, look, the, Fred, the Fed has expressed a, a strong uh, sort of queasiness about going toward interest rates that are negative. But as you said, sign of the times. Definitely. Ed, thanks for joining us. Good to talk to you, Ash. Keep with the blue shirt. I will stay in the blue shirt posse. <laughs>
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.